me to Jude. Turn with me to Jude. I won't say what chapter because there's only one chapter in Jude, uh, if you know that. But if you'll turn to the end of your Bible and start flipping back a couple pages, you'll, you'll run into Jude. Don't pass it, though. It's, it's right there tucked away, and uh, it is the last of what we call the general epistles, uh, sent out generally to general areas, but also general people, and written by general people. And so this is one of the reasons why it's called the general epistles. And so the last one is Jude. I want to look at that with you just briefly, a few verses here. We're going to start uh, reading with verse 3, and then we're going to drop down, if you can look ahead there, to verse 20 and go to the end. Notice these words from Holy Scripture in Jude 3 and in 20 through 25. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's quite a mouthful. Drop down to 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and Praying in the Holy Spirit. Love that. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. May this be a holy word to us this morning. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday, Bo tried out for seven-year-old Baseball. It's that time of the year again. And yes, even for seven-year-olds, they have tryouts. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody's going to get on, you know, somebody's not going to get on a team, okay? Everybody, everybody gets assigned a team. But all the coaches are lined up, and they watch the players field the ball, throw the ball, run, and hit. It's quite intimidating for a seven-year-old. And Bo had taken the winter off with no activities of such, other than video gaming. He was working on his thumbs, but not his fastball. His performance was abysmal, to be honest with you. I'm I'm glad he's not in here, but it was abysmal. He did very poorly. Out of five pitches thrown to him, he hit two of them only, most of the time swinging once it actually hit the backdrop behind him, and the two that he ended up hitting were foul balls was not his day, and so the coaches are all 
legs crossed, analyzing and writing down. And so I'm sure on the uh, matrix that they were using, he was low on the totem pole for yesterday. And I was a bit dumbfounded because Bo is naturally a good baseball player. Like he just kind of picks it up. And yet he performed very badly. Um, When the ball was passed to him, he dropped it. And I got to thinking, that sounds a lot like us sometimes, doesn't it? <laughs> we, we think we can perform just the drop of the hat without any preparation. And yet, when it comes down to it, eee, wasn't such a good job, actually. Most of the time, if we're honest, some of our performance is abysmal. And we're really low on anybody's metrics that's counting holiness or a blameless life. Practice, as they say, makes perfect, right? Lent is a time of practice. Lent is a time where we bring things out of the closet and we clean it up and we throw it away and we discard it. And then we put what is good and useful back in the closets of our lives, so to speak. Lent is... In short, a type of spring cleaning. And we desperately need that from time to time. Going through life, we accumulate quite a bit of garbage in our life. And this is a time where we unload and take inventory and allow God to put us back together again. And He can do that. That's the good news, is He can do that. Notice in Jude already, I mean, this is, this is early on in the church. This is within the first century. And yet he already is concerned for keeping the faith. The faith like marriage, the faith like family, the faith like all of our key relationships must be well kept. It's something we work on. It's something we put effort toward. It doesn't just fix itself. And it must be guarded. And if you notice the language that is being used here, he says, he says, brothers, I'm writing to you, beloved, I'm writing to you for our common salvation. Which we ought to take note at that point and just say, I thought in the American experiment it was a private faith. Not according to the scriptures. Our faith is meant to be public and in community. Common. And then he says, I'm writing so that you contend for the faith. That's a strong word. Contend, struggle to surmount difficulty or danger. In other words, the The letter writer of this epistle says, you're going to have to guard your faith. There are things that are trying to kill your faith. And nothing kills it quicker than sin. And he says, look, this faith was once for all delivered to the saints. Because Jesus has come. He delivered the gospel in Person. He didn't just have emissaries, ambassadors, but he came himself. He showed up himself 
to deliver the good news that God loves us. And, and before we were ever even conscious of God, Jesus died for us. Before we ever even became enemies of him and wanted our way instead of his way, he had mercy and grace upon us. That's something to celebrate. That's something to get excited about because you no one can claim that nobody cares because Jesus does. And his church does because his church is the body of Christ. <clears throat> we, like Bo, need some practice. Practice in godliness. We practice at a lot of things. We like to get better at our jobs. I was discussing with Jessica the other day my frustration with people's driving. I think some people, they just assume they can drive well. They think because they've been doing it for 30 years, they can do it well. I want to get better at driving every time I drive, is what I was explaining to her. I wish everybody had that sentiment. But there's a greater desire that I have, and that is for your godliness. Truly. You say, surely not me. God, godly is not really the word. I would, listen, if you're in Christ, you are called to be godly. We all are. And we put on Christ until we look like Christ. And this is what he has told us, my will for you, people always want to know what the will of God is. I, Paul tells us clearly, my will for you, Christ says, is your sanctification. You being made holy and presented blameless. Notice that language, Rachel uh, referred to it and now we hear it again, blameless as the bride of Christ. Beautiful. You're called to be Beautiful. Not just on the outside. For this body's passing away. But in here. We've all been around people that may not be supermodels on the outside. But we choose them over someone's ugliness inside that does look good. We know who really is our friend when it comes down to it. Who really cares for us. And that makes a greater... Let's be those kind of people. Those are godly people. Jesus cares about people. And that's tough to do. The idea of it is nice. Everybody likes the idea. Everybody's willing to get behind Martin Luther King or whoever at Gandhi, whoever else that's, that's willing to forge a new way to liking people and loving people. But rarely do we find in our own lives, given the situation, to actually love somebody that we do it sacrificially. But the good news is, Christ can fill us with the love of God. Because he is the love of God. So what should Bo do? You know, that's what I've been asking myself. What should he do, right? He's got to get better at baseball. How do you do that? And everybody's got a quick fix. You know what I mean? You see these memes. You see these articles that come across your feed or across your emails. And every three steps... To a beach body. And everybody likes the idea of having a beach body. We see those six packs rolled out. I don't mean beer. And 
we say, man, that's going to be me by the end of the year. Or maybe some of us think like Bo that we're already there. Until the mirror disproves us and we say, liar, right? (laughs) Five ways to a more financially secure future. Whatever it is, five steps, twelve steps. We all want a clear answer. We know, we all agree on this, and that is we know something's wrong. We know something's not right. We know we're not performing as we're really called to perform. We may not even know where that call is, but there's in every human life an understanding that there's something wrong. If you study the world's religions, which I've tried to do, and I'm an amateur, but I still, you know, have looked at them pretty intensely and taught about them. And one thing they all have in common is this. They all identify something wrong with the world. And then they offer a solution for that. And the solutions are all over the place most of the time. But many of them, the problem is our body. For most of the world's religions, the problem is the body. And this old body, if we could just get out of this body and become more spiritual, that is salvation. Friends, I'm here to tell you that Jesus' way of saving us was to take on a body. He doesn't see the body as evil. He sees the body as his home. That's mind-blowing. I mean, in the, in the history of the world's religion, that alone should make us stop in our tracks and say, wow, we Christians have something really interesting here. And that is a message that says your body is not evil. It's actually something deeper in that's evil. We're all looking for a quick fix. We're all looking for easy answers. And I'm here to tell you that Christ has given us, I think, the easiest answer to both the problem and the solution, and that is the Apostles' Creed. This is a gift. This is a summary of the faith. It's a summary of what we, it is we believe in. We look on Wikipedia, we look on Google for all the answers, these big questions. What is marriage? How can I save my marriage? What is the meaning of life? What is a human? How do I find a mate? How do I make friends? What's the best car to own? We ask these big questions and expect these small answers, don't we? God lives in reality, and he gives us, because we have these big questions, he gives us a big answer. Ultimately, he gives us himself. And the creed is organized, as you already know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that's God's answer to the human problem of sin. Evil in the world is not just in the world, it's in us. It runs right through us. It's not about just saving the world. It's about Him saving me. In His world, and then I become a pararescue person in His elite army, at least that's the way I like to think of myself. Trying to snatch people from the fire. Did you catch the the language? Did you catch the language? Some people have mercy on them because they doubt. Some people snatch them up before they fall off the cliff. And other people have mercy on them. 
but don't contaminate yourself with their lifestyle. Don't intermingle. For when you play with fire, you smell like smoke. And it's so true. I wish in our culture, and I, I really, this is something that uh, I'm actually grappling with myself as we're uh, going into shock here. I'm glad I'm not plugged into anything, you know what I mean? Um, it's all wireless. <laughs> um, not sure we're having power surges or whatnot, but one of the things I've been really thinking about, our, think with me about this. I wish that people were angry at God sometimes. Because what that shows is some emotion to find the truth. I wish people were distraught sometimes over the question of God. But what I'm finding more and more in our culture and society is just this. Eh. Apathy. Instead of passion or drive or anger or any emotion, I'm finding no pulse at all. Have you ever been in a relationship with somebody like that? Like, it's actually good that that husband and wife sometimes go head to head. That means you're alive. For your friends to disagree means you're alive. It's okay. We're two different people coming together as one. But to just be eh, apathetic sitting on the couch of our life, boy, that's a That's a really sad place to be. And it's where our culture is. And we're called to wake them up. We really are. I don't know how to do that. I'm telling you, I really don't know how to do that. But Christ has called us to snatch some from the fire. To have mercy on those who are going to be poor for the next 40 years. We're going to be serving them food for the next 40 years. He says, do that. Keep doing that. Love your neighbor, that co-worker. We know something's wrong. And what is wrong is sin. And sins. Sins that we do, but, but all the sins that we do have, have a root when traced back. Have a root problem. That is sin in the heart. Thanks be to God that He can not only forgive us of our sin, but He can transform us. That's the message of the gospel. He didn't come just to die so that you can just continually be forgiven and continually cheat on Him. No, no. Transformation. The purpose of Jessica's forgiveness to me, or one of my friend's forgiveness to me, When I've done something stupid or ignorant or idiotic. The purpose of forgiveness is restoration and transformation. It's not license to continue to hurt. It's not license to continue to live subpar, below where we are called to live. I don't know how to communicate it better than to say Christ came to transform us, to take us from A death life, dead life to living hope, joy. God in us. Love for others that we can't conjure up ourselves or by the bootstraps pull ourselves into. 
No, no, no. This is something that comes from God. You wake up one day as you're following Jesus Christ. You say, how do I love these people? I used to not like these people at all. And now all of a sudden, I find new love. Love that obviously didn't come from me. But it's transformation through Jesus Christ. (laughs) And I just got to tell you, he can do that. That's not like some high philosophical thought or lofty, you know, resolution for the new year. That's what he came to do. That's all the Holy Spirit does when he comes into a life. If he's not doing that, let's check to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because there are other spirits in this life. We must not be filled with them. We must not listen to them. You see, God in the Apostles' Creed has given us a summary of our faith. You can call it a catechesis. This is a unique word for many. But catechumens were people who entered the faith but learned about it before they entered it. So in other words, if you wanted, in the first, second, third century we know, that people who wanted to come to Christ, they made them wait a year before they were baptized in order to catechize them, which is teach them. Actually, we get our term echo. The, the word echo comes from the word catechesis. It's like an echo through time that is passed down of something that has been given once and for all as the language here in Jude. God has given us his gospel in his word. He's given it to us and now we are called to echo that word in this local church. Creeds matter. Words matter. They make us who we are. They remind us of who we are. I told Bo, I said, Bo, man, that wasn't so good, was it, buddy? He said, no, sir, that was great. I said, I I was trying to be, you know, judicious with it. And I said, why do you think that was so good, buddy? He said, well, that guy that I was practicing with... (laughs) because they had some James Clemens baseball players there to help warm them up before they went before the coaches. And he said, that guy that was, was warming me up, he said, um, he said, I was the best player that come through today. I said, buddy, but you missed all the balls, you know? I mean, like the evidence wasn't there. You know, I, I, I found in our world, there's a lot of people that want to tickle our ears. For whatever reason, I don't, I don't know why, they want to tickle our ears. They want to tell us that we're good. And, and there's this whole pressure at the workplace and pressure at school, pressure in our lives and our neighborhoods that, hey, you don't ever say anything. Mm-mm. Don't you go there. No, no, no. Not, you don't have any right. And we've righted ourselves right into hell. Where everybody's telling us we're okay. The TV telling us we're okay. The articles we read tell us we're okay. But not his word. And what word will last? When all the articles fall away, when all the words that are echoing throughout our culture and universe fall away, there's only one word that remains. It's the word of God. There's only one opinion or one reality that ultimately remains. And it's God's word. No, I told Bo he did a bad job because I'm his father. That's my job. But I said, Bo, you're a good player. Notice what I did. Bo, your performance was terrible, buddy. 
but I reminded him of who he is, and he actually is a good player. And I said, Bo, we got to work on this, man. We're going we're gonna to be working on this so that when you get picked, because you were down here on a team. I didn't tell him this, but you know, he's probably going to get put on a low man team or whatever, you know. But he's going to wow the coach. Why? Because we're going to practice. We're going put, to put it together. We're going to work hard. We're going to sacrifice time to get it done. It's the same thing we do. We need to be told and reminded regularly of who we are. We forget. And so from retail to politics, from school to culture, we use creeds to shape people, to shape ideas. Think about it. Declaration of Independence, United States of America contains this creedal affirmation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's not subjective happiness, by the way. If you actually look at what they meant by happiness, it's morality and virtue. Notice America's Pledge of Allegiance, creedal formula. One nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Every branch of the military has a creed. They're all about creeds. Why? Because they shape who you are. They remind you of who you are. Even in the worst of times, they are there to remind you of who you are. Take, for instance, uh, penned by Major General William Rupertus. Sorry, Major General. Um, after the Pearl Harbor attack, he, he penned this, and this, and I won't say the whole thing, but this is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. So on and so forth. Or take, for instance, uh, some of my favorite crews, and that is the, uh, the Navy SEALs. They have a creed. I won't read you the whole thing again. But loyalty to country, team, and teammate. Serve with honor and integrity on and off the battlefield. Ready to lead, ready to follow, never to quit. Take responsibility for your actions and the actions of your teammates. Excel as warriors through discipline and innovation. Notice this, none of this uh, is saying sit on the couch. Eat in the bag of Lay's potato chips. This is not the way to godliness, it's not the way to health, and it is not the way of life. Life takes sacrifice, but sacrifice for the right things is worth it. For life, it's worth it. Or take the ranger creed. Recognizing that I have volunteered as a ranger, fully knowing the hazards of my chosen profession, I will always endeavor to uphold the prestige, honor, and high spirit decor of my ranger regiment. So on and so forth. It's longer than what I'm giving you here. These are creeds that define groups of people that protect us. And there are other creeds of retail, save money, live better, Walmart, right? <laughs> You're in good hands with Allstate, right? Think of all the school fight songs that we could list and sing and whatever. Um, I don't know them, but I didn't go to a school like that. But some of you know them well. Those are creeds that 
form who we are. Think about when you go to the doctor, you hope that medical doctor has taken the Hippocratic oath. I swear to fulfill to the best of my ability and judgment this covenant. I will respect the hard-won scientific gains, so on and so forth, for life and not for hurt. Creeds make us who we are. And we have a creed as Christians that even to this day, roughly 2,000 years after the words were gathered up in Scripture and given to us and echoed down through the generation. It's still echoed in our halls today in both tents. I mean, I was in Haiti. I was a little shed with tarp around it. That was their meeting place. But guess what? They believe the creed. They say the creed. I was in chapel and we said the creed together. India saying the creed. China saying the creed. Everybody believes this creed, this Apostles' Creed. There is no better summary of the faith taken right from Scripture, by the way. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be detailing and showing you, hey, here it is, right here in Scripture, taken directly out of Scripture. That's why we call it the Apostles' Creed. It's not that all the twelve wrote it, although... There are 12 stanzas or affirmations. And tradition has it that each of the 12 apostles added one affirmation to make the whole apostle. Whether that's true or not, here's what the creed says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's number one. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to the dead. The third day he rose from the dead. Notice that, remember that, we talked about that last week, the rhythms of life, up and down. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It needs its own affirmation. The Holy Spirit... The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. This is an apostolic witness passed down to us. And now, just like the ball being passed to us, what are we going to do? Drop it? Run? Do nothing? Or do something useful? It's time to practice what we recite It's time to live out as witnesses of this apostolic message. It's time for you to do that. It's time for me to do that. And we're entering into a season where we sacrifice certain things so that we can practice godliness. That's what Lent's about. And it needs to be a rhythm that's a part of all of our lives so that we don't fall into the ditch of Pharisaism in making following rules salvation. Or antinomianism, which is a mouthful, just simply means no law at all. I'm free to do whatever and make my own reality and construct it. No, you're not. Not according to the scriptures. Not thus says Marshall, but thus says the Lord. So, who are we listening to? The guy that's telling us, oh yeah, you're the best, <laughs> you're the best Christian has ever come through. When our performance doesn't match up. Are we listening to the voice of our Father who would say, Child, we got a lot of work to do. 
but you are a good player. We're going to make you better. That's what the Lord wants to do in our life. And He can do it. And notice, He will do it if we look to Him, because now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now, and forevermore. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.